0: opinion columnist would have been unthinkable for most of my life the columns were usually about politics or social questions or moments in popular culture they weren't personal at all they used a confident public voice my readers probably thought I was as confident as that all the time but I knew the truth my private life was solitary. My private voice was apologetic. In terms of national influence, I mattered in Ireland, but I possessed nothing of what has traditionally mattered to women and what had mattered to me during most of my life. I had no lover, no child. It seemed to me that I had nothing to look back on but failure. But when I'd been writing my columns for ten years or so, a publisher came to me and asked whether he could put some of them together in book form. I said that was fine. No one would track my work through the back numbers of the newspaper, but a book gets around. It might be the only thing to read in a trekkers' hut in Nepal. It would be catalogued in the National Library. It would be there for my grandniece. Who is only a baby now. But I wasn't interested in the old columns. I was interested in what I would say in the personal introduction I promised to write. What would I say about myself, the person who wrote the columns? Now that I have the opportunity, how would I introduce myself? I'm fairly well known in Ireland. I've been on television a lot, and there's a photo of me in the paper at the top of my column. But I'm no star. People have to look at me twice or three times to put a name on me. Sometimes when I'm drinking in a lounge bar, a group of women, say, across the room, may look at me and send one of their number over to me. Or when I'm in the grocery store, someone who has just passed me by turns back and comes right up to me and scrutinizes my face. Are you somebody, they ask? Well, am I somebody? I'm not anybody in terms of the world. But then, who decides what a somebody is? How is a somebody made? I've never done anything remarkable. Neither have most people. Yet most people, like me, feel remarkable. That self-importance welled up inside me i had the desire to give an account of my life i was finished with furtiveness i sat down to write the introduction and i summoned my pride i turned it into a memoir i imagined the hostile response i'd get in my little irish world who does she think she is i could hear the reviewers saying but it turned out not to be like that at all. The world my story went out to turned out to be much, much bigger than I'd ever thought. And it turned out to be full of people who knew me, who were sisters and brothers, although we had never met, who were there to welcome me coming out of the shadows, and who wanted to throw off the shadows that obscured their own lives too. My small voice was answered by a rich chorus of voices. My voice, which had once been mute. Of all the places where my story might start, even, it started itself at a point in my life when I couldn't speak at all. in my early 30s and entering a bad period of my life I was living in London on my own working as a television producer with the BBC the man who had absorbed me for 10 years and whom I had once been going to marry had finally left I came home one day to the flat in Islington and there was a note on the table saying back Tuesday I knew he wouldn't come back and he didn't I didn't really want him to. We were exhausted. But still, I didn't know what to do. I used to sit in my chair every night and read and drink a lot of cheap white wine. I'd say hello to the fridge when its motor turned itself on. One New Year's Eve, I wished the announcer on Radio 3 a Happy New Year to you, too. I was very depressed. I asked the doctor to send me to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist was in an office in a hospital. Well, now, let's get your name right to begin with, he said cheerfully. What's your name? My name is... My name is... I could not say my name. I cried as from an ocean of tears for the rest of the hour. Myself was too sorrowful to speak, and I was in the wrong place, in England. My name was a burden to me. Not that the psychiatrist saw it like that. I only went to him once more, but I did manage to get out a bit about my background and about the way I was living. Eventually he said something that lifted a corner of the fog of unconsciousness. You are going to great trouble, he said, and flying in the face of the facts of your life to recreate your mother's life. Once he said this, I could see it was true. Mammy sat in her chair in a flat in Dublin and read and drank. Before she sat in the chair, she was in bed. She might venture shakily down to the pub. Then she would totter home and sit in her chair. Then she went to bed. She had had to work the treadmill of feeding and clothing and cleaning child after child for decades. Now all but one of the nine had gone. My father had moved himself and her and that last one to a flash, and she sat there. She had the money he gave her, never enough to slake her anxieties. She had nothing to do, and there was nothing she wanted to do, except drink and read. And there was I, half her age, not dependent on anyone, not tired or trapped, with an interesting well-paid job, with freedom and health and occasional good looks. Yet I was loyally recreating her wasteland around myself. One of the stories of my life has been the working out in it of her powerful and damaging example in everything Nothing matters except passion, she indicated. It was what had mattered to her, and she more or less sustained a myth of passionate happiness for the first ten years of her marriage. She didn't value any other kind of relationship. She wasn't interested in friendship. If she had thoughts or ideas, she never mentioned them. She was more like a shy animal on the outskirts of the human settlement than a person within it. She read all the time, not to feed reflection, but as part of her utter determination to avoid reflection. What made her? Her father, my granddad, wrote his memoirs a few pages in pencil in a lined copybook. He was one of fourteen children on a small holding, and perhaps because, like his brothers and sisters, He had had to emigrate when he was a boy, and there was never a family again. He remembered his childhood home with an abundance of sentiment. I will try and give you a typical family scene as I saw it in the beginning of the 1890s, he wrote. Father would enter the kitchen after dark and would start making and mending. A chair, a basket, or some harness. He would always sing at his work, he having a great variety of songs in both English and Irish. The babies would be asleep and the next elders would have their feet washed in a wooden vessel, then follow. After the rosary was said, the next elders would retire. Mother would be putting the last thread in her needle. An oil lamp hung before the window and a turf fire in the hearth would be supplemented by a piece of bog deal which cast a light on the dresser, so that the jugs and other ware would gleam as if a light. Sometimes, when not engaged in work, father would pull down the weekly paper and read aloud, mostly at the political news, stopping now and then to put his own interpretation on it. Mother, near at hand, would be an eager listener. My mother, the granddaughter of this ideal pair, was anything but an eager listener. I don't know what happened down the generations. I don't suppose that history explains it, that the individual person comes out of a vessel into which two jugs called heredity and environment have been poured. But perhaps emigration did something to the relationship between women and children, Children were toughened early, sent out into the world with their cardboard suitcases, one minute warm in the tribe, the next minute walking down the steps of some distant railway station into a world they must handle on their own. Under the surface competence, they must have been infantile. Somewhere in the years that fed down into my mother, there were too many children, and too few resources. She was the most motherless of women herself. Her own mother, in the little account anyone ever gave of her, was angry and energetic, running a tailoress operation in the front room of the red-brick terraced house in Clonagh Road in Dublin, sewing shrouds late at night for the dead of the parish. Tuberculosis makes you feverish, and she was slowly dying of TV. She threw a red-hot iron at me, was all my mother ever said, sulkily, about her. She said I always had my head stuck in a book. But then, one child had already died. One grown-up daughter was dying of TV along with the mother. There were seven more being reared for emigration. It was an ordinary, respectable Irish household of the time. The woman of the house never went out, never had money, never stopped having children. My own mother held herself at arm's length from this reality. She grew up with no skills. She didn't know how to make small talk, or cook a breakfast, or tie up a parcel, or name a tree or flower. When I knew my grandfather, he had long been a widower. He dreamt of champion greyhounds and hobbled up Clonliffe Road to a public bench where he talked slowly with other patriarchs, other countrymen displaced. I didn't know why my mother feared him. He ate bullseyes and read The Saint Thrillers. He would say to me from his frosty bed, hand me over those trousers. He'd fumble in the pocket and give me pennies. He sat on the upright chair to put on his long johns, and his penis was like some purply, barnacled, mineral thing found on the seabed. He expected his tea and bread and butter brought to his chair. He would certainly have denied that the fact that three of his children were ferocious alcoholics had anything to do with him. No one takes responsibility for the big Irish families that in generation after generation are ravaged by alcoholism. My mother didn't want anything to do with child-rearing or housework, but she had to do it. Because she fell in love with my father and they married, she was condemned to spend her life as a mother and a homemaker. She was in the wrong job. Sometimes I meet women who remind me of her, i stay in bed and breakfasts around the country they throw sugar on the fire to get it to light and wipe surfaces with an old rag that smells and they're forever sending children to the shops they question me half censorious half wistful and did you never want to get married yourself the one thing my mother knew definitely existed was her body She was sent home from convent boarding school because of dancing too close to the girl she adored. She was baffled by the punishment, never having heard of lesbianism.